Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast, a conversation designed to help leaders go further, faster. I'm Andy Stanley. And before we jump into today's content, I wanted to talk about a special offer from our friends at Belay. From startups to large corporations, we all want to grow. But as a leader, you need extra time to do what only you can do. It's one of the things that all of us struggle with. And this is where our friends at Belay can help. Belay will help you free up your time and allow you to focus on the things that matter most to your success and make the biggest difference in your organization. Because whether you need a highly vetted US-based virtual assistant, bookkeeper, social media manager, or website specialist, Belay has the right person ready to help right now. And to help you get started, Belay is offering their latest book, Delegate to Elevate for free. Delegate to Elevate. You can get this book for free. It's an ebook and it'll help you learn how to stop diluting your efforts and trusting your team with more responsibility. This will empower you to courageously focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses, which is one of the things that every great leader does. To claim this offer, you just need to text the word Andy, A-N-D-Y, to 55123. That's Andy to 55123 and get your free copy today. You'll get it in no time and you'll be back to doing what only you can do, which is growing your organization. And now let's jump into today's content. And I have been looking forward to this podcast episode for a long, long time because we have Adam Grant to talk about his book, Think Again. I was just telling Adam that uh, Sandra and I are avid readers, but we rarely read the same book at the same time. And when I began reading Think Again, I said, darling, you've got to read this book because I want to talk about it with you. And this was such a, a powerful experience for us as a couple, especially, you know, coming through COVID, all the political turmoil, all the stuff going on in our nation. So when I had the opportunity to get Adam in the studio with me, I said, absolutely. So Adam, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. I'm honored to be here. I was actually introduced to you in 2016 um, through your book, Originals. And for the half dozen of you out there who are unfamiliar with Adam's work, um, Adam's been Wharton's top-rated professor for seven straight years, not a casual endeavor. Um, He's a trained organizational psychologist. He's been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of five books. He's sold millions of copies. And his latest, again, Think Again, is our topic for today. So let's jump right in. Adam, to get started, for those unfamiliar with the book, what is really, what is at the core of the message of Think Again? What's what's the big idea? I think the big idea is that in a changing world, the only way to thrive is to be willing to change your mind. And I really wrote this book to try to figure out how we could open our own minds and also open the minds of the people around us, which seems to be a challenge in the world right yeah, now. Yeah. In fact, I when I thought about this conversation, I actually wrote in my notes, I wrote down the question, why is this so hard? Because everybody listening to this podcast is absolutely sure they are among the most open-minded, teachable people on the planet, right? I mean, that's just the assumption, but that's not the case. So talk a little bit more about that. Well, I, I think that so many people, and we see this in every single walk of life, get stuck thinking too much like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. Yeah, be careful there with the preachers. Go ahead. Uh, well, I actually <laughs> want to hear your reaction to this because I'm probably too too harsh on preachers here. No, I, I love this section of the book. So go ahead, just wail away. Uh, I'm so disappointed. I was hoping you were going to motivate me to rethink it. No. Maybe, pre- maybe you still will. No, no. Preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. Go ahead. 
Yeah, this this was originally my colleague Phil Tetlock's research, where he observed that as we you know as we make decisions, when we communicate with other people, um, when we go into preacher mode, we're basically trying to proselytize our own views. In prosecutor mode, we're attacking somebody else's views. And in politician mode, we only listen to people if they already agree with our views. Yeah. And I think it's really worth pausing to ask, what is your biggest vice of, of the re- these three mental models? I know that personally, mine is prosecutor mode. There are, there are times when I think somebody is wrong and I feel it's my professional responsibility as a social scientist and my moral responsibility as a human being to correct them. Yep. And strangely, that never goes well. Really? Uh, I can't imagine why. Yeah. Uh, when I show up at, at, at the courtroom as a prosecutor, they bring their best defense attorney and neither of us is willing to budge. Um, and I, I think I have some of my worst arguments are with people whose default is to go into preaching mode because when I think somebody is preaching and giving a one-sided argument, I, I then, you know, it immediately raises my eyebrows. I'm like, well, well, how do you know? And let me present with a bunch of contrary evidence. And then they feel attacked and it, it ends up being a horrible conversation. I, I'm really curious to hear, Andy, uh, why why you weren't bothered by the way I characterize preachers, because it's it's very much a caricature of what you do. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a caricature. You you might have you might have nailed it. Who knows, right? <laughs> because because think about it. I stand up on you know generally a Sunday morning with a microphone, and people sit in rows. They can't raise their hands. Uh, they can't ask questions. They can't give me feedback. You know, in the old school church, you know, they might say amen or moo, you know, mm, or, you know, I get some agreement. Well, gosh, give me a little agreement and what I'm just going to dig in, go further and, you know, push harder on whatever it is I said that got that affirmation. So it's it's 100% one-sided. And as we all learn at some point in our adult lives, the man or woman with the microphone always wins. They always win. And you give a person with a powerful, charismatic personality, which I'm not necessarily that, but you give them a microphone and the energy alone is enough to move people, right? I mean, I, I, I tell communicators all the time, Adolf Hitler split the world with a microphone. That's all he did was talk. He talked the world in half. So I don't think you mischaracterize it at all. But of course, the problem is, if I'm going to learn anything, if I'm going to get better, if I'm going to make the world a better place, I can't respond in like kind or I'm never going to learn anything. So again, tease this out for us a a little bit better. Preacher, prosecutor, and politicians, you say the alternative is to be a what? A scientist. A scientist. Talk about that. Well, when I say think like a scientist, I do not mean that you need to own a microscope or buy a telescope. Although, Andy, personally, I would enjoy it if you dressed up like Bill Nye once a week, just for fun, right? I would have people's undivided attention, maybe for the first time. I mean, I think that's an experiment you should run, (laughs) and we'll find out if it was a terrible idea, and I take full full blame if it was. But when I say think like a scientist, what I'm trying to highlight is that it's dangerous to let your ideas become part of your identity. That you need to have the humility to know what you don't know and the curiosity to seek out new knowledge. Um, And that means you're as motivated to look for reasons why you might be wrong as you are to search for reasons why you must be right. And I think the the power of thinking like a scientist is that it it forces us to become mentally flexible because we realize so many of even our strongest opinions and beliefs are just theories. They're just hypotheses waiting to be tested. Many of the decisions we make and the commitments that we, we back Um, They're really just experiments that we're running, only we didn't have a control group and we weren't rigorously gathering data about the impact. 
And I would love to see more people get into this mentality because I think we're, we're, we're in a world that's right now um, full of conviction instead of curiosity. Um, it's full of certainty instead of doubt. And it's really hard to get good answers when we don't even bother to ask questions in the first place. My version of that is be a student, not a critic. Be a student, not a critic. Student first, critic second. Just ask questions. And again, none of this is new, but it is so ridiculously hard. And in the book, you give some very specific steps or suggestions, I would say, in terms of how to begin moving from preacher, you know, prosecutor, politician mode into science mode. And I just want to say one thing to all of our podcast listeners. I want you to pay attention to your emotional response to the next few minutes, because you're probably going to experience the very thing that Adam is helping us address. Because the moment we begin internally pushing back is a moment that we're probably no longer learning. I think there is, before we jump into this very practical content, there's a fear. Isn't there like a fear I'm going to lose something? If I open my mind or my heart to something new, there's a fear of I'm going to have to give something up, which is true. Whenever we learn something new, we always give something up. But there's just something, there's just a, a concern or a fear. And there's really nothing to fear with new information. In fact, I don't want to give it away now, but one of my favorite phrases in the book we'll talk about in a minute has to do with that. But why the fear? Why both feet on the brake instead of saying, hey, you know, I may learn something new. What, what's going on there? Any ideas? Well, I think if, at least the, the evidence that I've, I've found most helpful on this is there, there are multiple fears that stop people from being willing to think again. One is it's a threat to your intelligence, right? If I admit that I was wrong, I might not be as smart as I thought I was. And worse yet. <laughs> That's that, a safe assumption for all of us, right? <laughs> it might be. I yeah. mean, I, I, I don't know many people who are as smart as they think they are. Uh, and in fact, I'd, I'd rather you be smarter than you think you are. Uh, I think it's, it's healthier to underestimate Why yourself. Why you wrote a the book. Bit than, yeah. Yeah, than to overestimate. But I think there's, there's an image threat associated with that, that other people are going to think that I'm an idiot or that I'm incompetent or I'm a bad decision maker. I think there's an integrity threat here as well, that if I change my mind, I look like a, a flip-flopper or a hypocrite. Um, and then there's also a worry that I'm going to get excluded from my group or ostracized if I abandon a belief that the people around me share. And yeah. so that's a lot of baggage yeah. to carry with you on a solo journey. But in spite of that, at least intellectually, we would agree, it's just, but it's still better to be right than to be wrong. It's better to be correct than incorrect. It's better to be accurate than inaccurate at the end of the day. And no one would argue with that, but gosh, the pushback is extraordinary. Now, when it comes to that humility thing, losing face, losing influence, I have three children and they're all in their, my 29, 27, 26, two married, one single. My oldest is engaged. So we're getting close to having three married kids. But growing up, even as a dad, when I was wrong, just losing the potential awe and wonder of my children would cause me at times to dig in, even when I, I knew, or, you know, the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm probably wrong. Did you, did you ever struggle with that as a parent? <laughs> Do you mean, did I yesterday, yesterday. or the day before? <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're still yes. in the house. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Our, our kids are 13 and 11 and 8. So um, this, is, this is really something I've learned from my wife, Allison. I remember a few years ago, one of our kids was trying to finish some homework and uh, I don't know, we had the TV on or something. And, and Allison later came and said, I made a mistake. I, I should have turned the TV off so you, should, so you could concentrate. 
And I wa- I've watched her do that over and over again to to call out her own errors before even I've noticed them yep. or our kids notice them. And it's reminded me like that that kind of humility actually builds respect, yep. right? Because if if somebody is willing to recognize out loud when they're wrong, it shows that they care more about getting it right than they do about being right. And all of a sudden, then that turns you into the parent who your kids can come to when they have a real problem. Yep. And, you know, what better thing to model for our children than curiosity and the willingness to say, oh, I was wrong, so now I'm better off. Oh, I was wrong, but now I'm better off. I mean, if we don't model it, that's not something they're going to pick up in culture because culture is 100% polarized. Everybody's, you know, locked down. Okay. Specifically, it's not easy to think like a scientist, I guess, unless you are a scientist. So give us two or three things to help us begin moving out of politician mode, preacher mode, and prosecutor mode. What are those? Sure. So I think the first one for me is you need a different kind of network. Uh, we all know the value of having a support network, right? Having people around us who, who cheerlead for us and encourage us. But rethinking really depends on a different kind of network, which I've come to call a challenge network. Andy, your challenge network is the, the group of thoughtful critics who you trust to hold up a mirror so you can see your own blind spots more clearly. Um, they're the people who, instead of lining up to tell you the, the, the comforting lies, actually have the courage to, to feed you maybe unpleasant truths. Mm. And I, I think even, you know, even on social media, right, that means you follow people not because you agree with their answers, but because you admire the intellectual integrity that they bring to their questions. Yep. Um, I'll tell you how I've, how I've done this recently. I've reached out to some of the most thoughtful critics in my life, and I've told them, hey, you might not know this, but I actually consider you a founding member of my Challenge Network. Hmm. Then I had to explain what a Challenge Network was. <laughs> but after I made it clear, I said, I know I have not always taken your criticism well. Sometimes I've gotten defensive. Other times I've just been too dismissive. And I regret that because I know I need you to push me to think again. So if you ever hesitate because you're afraid of hurting my feelings or hurting our relationship, don't. Do you include family members in the network or are these more friends, people you work with? You know, it's interesting. I have never formally included a family member other than Allison, who is the the best challenger for everything I do. And she's going to do it anyway, so you might as well include her, right? (laughs) Exactly. And uh, I need to bend over backward to make sure that, you know, I don't take for granted that she knows her feedback matters most. Yep. I think for the most part, it's been colleagues and friends. Um, most of them, most of the people I've invited into it have a, a leaning toward either being disagreeable or contrarian. Mm. And they, they really enjoy kind of the, the yep. feisty debating and duking out ideas. But, but even some of those people have gotten discouraged because they've worried, you know, after I didn't take a suggestion that well, that in some cases they were worried that it was going to damage our relationship. In other cases, they just didn't want to hurt my feelings. Yep. And I had to explain to them, listen, the more honest you are with me, the more I will appreciate your feedback. In other words, for me, your honesty is a sign of loyalty. Like, I don't want you to, to tell me things that, that make me feel good. Right. I want you to share things that are going to help me do better. Well, did this precede the research for the book or did this come to you during the book? I mean, I don't have to tell you that's, that's not normal. We all want to stay in our <laughs> echo chamber that perpetuates our false sense of you know, smugness and brilliance. So when did, this, when did you start this? I think I started doing this uh, about a decade ago okay. uh, when, I was, when I was writing my first book, Give and Take, and I realized that it was, it was so easy to fall into this trap that psychologists call cognitive entrenchment, where I was making assumptions that did, I didn't even realize I was making them um, and taking for granted ideas that needed to be questioned. Hmm. 
And I found myself actually reaching out to, to some of my most uh, constructively critical students and asking them to read drafts and, and tear them apart. And in some ways, that's, that's what you do as an academic, right? When you submit a, a research paper for blind review, you have three experts in your field who don't know anything about who you are, uh, tell you exactly what the flaws are and try to help you fix them. And I found that I wanted that, that kind of blinded peer review mechanism to be a daily part of my life because it's, it's really the best way to learn. Wow. Daily is a bit brutal, but <laughs> weekly, monthly, you know, you know, start somewhere. Okay. That's fantastic. Hey, before we continue, as I mentioned at the top of the broadcast, our sponsor Belay is offering a free download of their latest book, Delegate to Elevate. In Delegate to Elevate, you'll learn how to stop diluting your efforts by trusting your team with more responsibility. This, of course, will empower you to courageously focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses, something we talk about all the time on the podcast. And if you do that, of course, you'll develop future leaders in the process. Just text the word Andy, A-N-D-Y, to 55123. That's Andy to 55123 for your free copy today. And you'll be back to doing what only you can do, which is growing your organization. So Build a Challenge Network, number two, I love this. I'm just going to read it to the audience because it's, I love this part. Base your identity on your values, not your opinions. We could spend a week on this. And I guess based on what I do professionally, I, this just spoke to me, to base your identity on your values, not your opinions. Talk about that a little bit, and I will try not to interject because I, this, I think this is life-changing. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to hear your reaction to it. I think a lot of people are kind of forming, especially now, right, as, as politically polarized as we are, they're forming their identities based on what they believe is true, when I think, in fact, their identity should be grounded in what they think is important. So the, the easy example for me is— okay, I, You've you, got to repeat that because that's the nut that we all need to crack, that we base our identity not on what we think is true, but what we think is important. Because the moment we do that, we find common ground with even our harshest critics, don't we? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you think about who you are, it's about the principles that you stand for, not the views that you hold, uh, or at least it should be. Right. Uh, because that means that you can interact with people that you think you intensely disagree with and discover that you both value freedom or safety or generosity or integrity, but you have different ideas about how to how to best express and fulfill those values. Yeah. Values is the common ground. And, and the common grounds where problems are solved and arguments end. So I think it's the only place that, <laughs> that we can ever, ever solve a problem. Uh, I, the, the example that really brings this to life for me is I was thinking about doctors uh, while I was writing the book. And I thought about, okay, if you're a doctor and you base your identity on your opinions, uh, if we rewound the clock a little over half a century, there were a lot of doctors who believed that a lobotomy was a necessary step or an effective step for treating yep. anxiety, uh, for you know, helping people with a range of disorders. And we now know that was a brutal and harmful practice. Well, if you're a doctor and your identity is, I am a professional lobotomist and this is the healthy treatment that I will give, I don't want to see you. I want to strip you of your license. Right. Right? The doctor that I trust is the one who, whose identity is, I learn from the best evidence. To, to care for patients. Yep. And I value and patients. I, am, I value the health of my patients. Exactly. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm somebody who protects and promotes health, first do no harm. 
Um, I'm somebody who's a curious learner, and I'm I'm constantly trying to figure out whether there's yeah, there's something I might have thought was was helpful that actually was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that I, I would love to see more of us take that on to say like my, the the heart of my identity is I am a person who values growth and mm-hmm. development, and the only way I can grow and develop is to commit to finding the truth, not believe I've already discovered it. And again, toward the end of the book, when you give fabulous advice in terms of helping other people change their way of thinking without being turned off immediately, the, the, the starting point is almost always with shared values. So for podcast listeners, the truth is the starting place for helping someone think differently or change their mind or see your perspective, whether it's your kids or a friend or someone who's, light, who's in crisis and you're trying to help them. It's shared values, not I think you ought to because I believe. I think you ought to because I believe. We, we all just naturally resist that. Okay, third application, becoming a scientist. The third one I would say is about mental time travel. I think one of the reasons that people get stuck to their, their beliefs and opinions is they, they kind of assume that they'll never change. And one of the easiest ways to, to recognize that that's wrong is to take yourself far into the past. So if you had grown up in the 1700s, what beliefs do you hold now that you wouldn't then? What things would you have believed then that you know are ridiculous now? And I, I did some experiments with a colleague, Tim Kundro, where we found that even with really passionate Yankees and Red Sox fans, if we could get them to just imagine, hey, what if I grew up in a different era or I'd been born in a different city? Might I root for a different team? Yep. Their animosity uh, toward their rivals actually started to evaporate. And I think the the, the simple lesson from this is that if you stretch out the time horizon far enough, you realize that there's almost no opinion or belief that's set in stone and that can't change in the face of new information. And once you realize that, your beliefs have to become tentative. Yeah, because you realize, and this is humbling, but that's the correct posture, that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to look back on what we believe, what we assume, and they're just going to laugh And we can't imagine that to be the case, but it's absolutely the case. And there is the humility, again, of focusing on values built rather than building identity around, I'm absolutely sure, you know, I believe this absolutely, you know, end of conversation. Yeah, Um, I mean, if you you go back, if you go back further, right, many of us would have been flat earthers once upon a time. I think we've moved on as science has moved on. And we believe things right now that are going to be in that category in a couple thousand years. I'm willing to bet. Yeah. Now, again, you put yourself in my shoes as a pastor, and all of this is a very difficult pill to swallow when it comes to religion, in, in any religion. Because, again, Christianity and specifically is built upon a belief system. It's actually built on a value system. But the perception is, and the way it's pitched oftentimes, is it's built on a belief system. And we don't need to go into that. But it makes this, I think, especially difficult for people who are religious, any religion, because there is a dogma that's an absolute. And then we just reimagine the world in such a way that it fits with, you know, here, believe this first, then look around second. But another topic for another day. Anyway. No, I, I, Andy, I would, love to, I would love to hear, actually, how do you think about getting people to embrace the value system and question the dogma? Well, since you ask, okay, at the epicenter of my faith is not a list of truths. At the epicenter of my faith is an actual person, Jesus of Nazareth. And if the Gospels are in any way an accurate reflection of historical events and things he actually said, especially the Sermon on the Mount that everybody, you know, holds up as, as the ultimate, which, which I agree with, 
these are value propositions. The Sermon on the Mount isn't, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's here's how you're to treat the people around you. And then at the very end of his ministry, Jesus says to his closest followers, here it is. Here's how people are going to know that you're my follower. I want you to treat them the way that I have treated you. I want you to love them the way that I have loved you. I mean, it is a 100% value proposition. But unfortunately, Christianity in particular has got wound around, here's five things we believe, and let's, let's start with what you believe and what you don't believe. But you follow Jesus through the Gospels, that's not what you discover. So that's the, uh, the religious short answer to that very intriguing question. That, that is so fascinating. And for me, at least, there, there are two things that jumped out about what you just said. The first one is that uh, it sounds like you care more about the, what people do than what they believe. That's because level. Jesus did. In fact, his mo- one of his most famous parables is if you put what I've just said, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you do what I just said, if you put these into practice, the person who puts these into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The person who does not not believe, the person who does not put these into practice is like a man who built his house on the sand. So, I mean, from start to finish, Jesus was about doing because, as we know, believing doesn't change anything. Believing doesn't make the world better. It's what we do that makes the world better or not better. So, you get some ideas as to why I absolutely love this book. Well, and I guess on that that other note, then, here we have, you're a preacher talking like a scientist, because you said, if the gospel is true, if this record is accurate, yep. as opposed to just accepting it on a yep. blind faith, which is exactly what a scientist could do, would do. Now, of course, this is this is impossible for a scientist to go and test, right? So you you deal in the realm of faith because we can't go back in time and you know and verify the record. But I love the the uncertainty that you express there. That that shows that you are open to learning, even though this is probably one of the the deepest tenets of your faith. Yeah, it absolutely is. So, but hey, the other thing too, if I really believe there is a personal God who created the universe then should I not, and if, and if somehow I am made in his image, should I not be the most curious, open-minded, you know, being in the universe, right? I mean, isn't that the essence of creation? But again, we're off the topic, but, you know, maybe we should do another podcast on this book and how it intersects with religious faith. Okay, now I got to get to this. One of my favorite illustrations, and this may shock you, but one that was an immediate takeaway for me is this, and I'll tee, tee it up and let you fill out the details. There was a college that had a um, basketball team. They had season ticket holders. They couldn't get the season ticket holders to actually go to the home games. I mean, they've already purchased the tickets, and they're not showing up. So the, the university marketing department is trying to figure out how do we get the season ticket holders to come to the game. So they tried several marketing ploys, all of which failed. And then they came up with a simple question that I think is so powerful and goes so much to the heart of this book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. This actually happened when I was on the UNC faculty, and I assumed that they'd sell out all their tickets every week because Tar Heel basketball is a serious obsession. And I had an undergraduate student named Rachel who who was actually working part-time in the athletic ticket office and noticed they had all these tickets that were going unused and the, the players didn't like it because they didn't have the energy of, you know, of the full arena. And, you know, it was sort of disappointing for the alums to look around and see empty seats. Like, what is happening? Well, it turns out a bunch of season ticket holders don't show up at every game. Mm. And Rachel decided that she'd do her undergraduate thesis on, could we motivate them to go? And 
what immediately occurred to both of us was let's let's make the most persuasive case we can. Let's get players and coaches to talk about how much it matters to have a packed house at a basketball game. And so we recruited some very well-known and influential voices to give a couple of testimonials, emailed that out to a randomly assigned group of fans. Uh, didn't really move the needle. What did budge was something much simpler. We just asked them, are you planning to attend the game? And guess what? When you ask that question, people start to get persuaded by the person they already like and trust themselves. And they, they even if they say no to that question, right, because it was a question, yep. they don't feel like somebody's trying to coerce them. Yep. And they may reflect on it. And because it's a desirable behavior, these are big fans, they want to go, they are more likely to, to follow through then on the plan to, to show up, even if it wasn't their original intent. And I, I thought it was such a, it was such a fun demonstration of how sometimes it's more effective instead of telling people your reasons for them to change to just ask them if they have any reasons to consider changing. Yeah. I, the part I wrote, I marked in the book, psychologists have long found that the person most likely to persuade you to change your mind is you. You get to pick the reasons you find most compelling and you come away with a real sense of ownership. So again, the question was, are you planning to attend? And I have applied this in so many areas because when the question is asked, I have to decide, am I planning to attend? And if I'm not planning to attend, then in my mind, I have to run through why I'm not planning to attend and probably why I should plan to attend. I've already purchased the tickets. And all you've done is ask the question. It's so brilliant. So moving along, the second half of the book, as I mentioned earlier, you talk a lot about how to help someone change their mind. The, you, the illustrations in there about racism are so powerful and obviously so relevant to some things going on in our, our nation and in the world right now. Uh, you write, the greater the distance between us and an adversary, the more likely we are to oversimplify their actual motives and invent explanations that stray far from their reality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the distance is what allows me to stay in my echo chamber. As you said a while ago, creating this network of people that you're actually close to and, and who have access to you is what helps close some of that what do you say to our culture in general that's so polarized politically uh, and in so many other ways? How in the world do we get closer so that we can become more student, less critic? I think, I think it would help to get out of binary bias a little bit, right? Which is the, the tendency to take a complex person or issue and oversimplify it into two categories, right? Good versus evil, dumb versus smart, right versus wrong. Yep. Those are all binaries. And we know the world is full of shades of gray. Um, one of the easiest ways to get there is, um, is actually just to, to highlight the complexity of an issue. Uh, I love this research by Peter Coleman and his colleagues where they'll just take the same issue, whether it's racism or gun control versus uh, gun rights or abortion, um, and basically say, look, this is not one side versus the other. This is a whole series of issues, and people who may agree with you on one dimension of them actually disagree on another. And so instead of me hearing the other side and thinking, huh, well, all of their arguments are horrible, so clearly I'm going to stick on mine, <laughs> yep. I can then say, well, I like this argument, but I'm kind of more on the middle of this one. And the goal is to, to look at disagreements not as opposite sides of a coin, but more like you're looking through many, many lenses of a prism. Yep. And, and I think it's easier said than done well, it's in a so, lot of it's cases. Especially right now, because, again, the way th everything's political right now. Everything has been politicized, like somebody needed to say that out loud. 
<laughs> and the challenge is, and you alluded to this earlier, and you talk about it in the book, the minute I break ranks with my political party on one issue, I'm out. There, there's just almost no room for what you're talking about. And yet there's no way to make progress without it. One other quote I want to read. I, I love this. You wrote, charged conversations cry out for nuance. Oh, my goodness. I mean, nuance is just, there's just no room for nuance. When we're preaching, prosecuting, or politicking, the complexity of reality can seem like an inconvenient truth. And if the complexity of reality is an inconvenient truth, we're never going to make any progress. So, gosh, we just need more nuance in the world, right? You know, I'm tempted to disagree with that just to look for the nuance in it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's spot on. And then you wrote, in scientist mode, it can be an invigorating truth. It means there are new opportunities for understanding and for progress. And this leads me to my favorite phrase in the book. And I know we got to wrap this up, but you talk about the joy of discovering your wrong. Sandra and I, we love that phrase, the joy. Oh, good. I realize I'm wrong, so now I'm not wrong anymore. I've just discovered I'm wrong, so now I'm not. The joy of discovering you're wrong. That could change the world. That's an amazing phrase. Talk about that a little bit. It's, it's become one of my favorites. I, I, I think the, the observation stemmed from an interaction I had with the Nobel laureate, Danny Kahneman, who I've seen on multiple occasions uh, put a hypothesis out, find out it was it was incorrect, and just light up. Yep. Um, you know his eyes twinkle. His he smiles bigger <laughs> probably than I've ever seen him smile in any other context. And finally, I, I sat down with him and, and asked him, Danny, it seems like you enjoy being wrong. Hmm. And he corrected me as you would expect a Nobel Prize winner to do. He said, I don't know anyone who enjoys being wrong. But I do, find, I do enjoy finding out that I was wrong because it now means that I am less wrong than I was before. Yep. And all of a sudden it hit me that like, part of what I love about being a, a psychologist is the rush of discovering something that I, I thought was true is, is probably not. And I said, well, that, that's a sign of learning. And he said, finding out I was wrong is the only way I'm sure that I've learned anything. Hmm. And if we could, I mean, this is something I think we should be teaching to kids, right? That... Like, this is something we do at our, our dinner table. Um, our, our kids think it's hilarious that we grew up believing that Pluto was a planet. Uh, and, you know, we, we talk about that at length, how we were convinced that yep. there were nine planets in the yep. solar system. And guess what? We had to unlearn that. It's on bulletin boards on every elementary school, you know, in America and all over the, the world. Yeah. But how much fun is it then to, to discover, wait a minute, I have to rethink my definition of a planet. Mm. What else might I believe about our universe that doesn't turn out to be true? Uh, and that's part of what ignites the, the wonder that I think leads people to, to discover new ideas. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So we're going to wrap up this month's conversation. As we close, anything you just want to leave our audience? I mean, it could relate to something we've talked about, something we didn't get to talk about in the book, or as you think back over the impact of this content in your life or on your readers, or if you had a final wish, what, what would it be? I think I would say that so many of our beliefs and our best practices were built for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And that we sh what we should be constantly doing is looking for better practices and better beliefs. And last time I checked, the point of learning is not to affirm what you already think, it's to evolve what you think. Wow. It's a fantastic book. Anybody who's listening to the podcast knows how much I appreciate it. Sandra and I both did. And again, as I said, we discussed our way through it. So thanks for all the hard work, all the research. This is a gift 
to our culture. It's a gift to the world, Adam. So grateful. That is all the time we have for today. I want to say one more time to Adam, thanks so much for being here. And to all of our listeners, we want to thank you for joining us and invite you to check out Adam's book, Think Again, wherever books are sold. And be sure to visit the andystanley.com website where you can download the Leadership Podcast Application Guide that includes a summary of this discussion, questions for reflection for your group or your team, and make sure you join us next month on the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast. We'll see you next month.